Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show, Science Facts and Fallacies, episode 235. My name, as always, is Cameron English. I am your host, joined again by Dr. Liza Dunn, world traveler, uh, gallivanting through Germany is what I hear, and I'm a little bit jealous because uh, I want to go. What's it like? It's awesome so far. We have been in Berlin, and it's been actually sunny and beautiful for September. That's very exciting. I've also heard from people that have been there that because it was destroyed after World War II, um, it's a beautiful modern city because they had to rebuild everything. So it's it's just, I don't know, it's almost like a futuristic looking kind of place. What's really fascinating about it is that there are like spots that are completely modern and then there are spots that are that are like traditional architecture that's that's just beautiful so it's 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 a fascinating mix of both and and so where i am right now it would have been the east side of berlin so it would have been behind the wall Mm. and there's a lot more modern um architecture here on the east side um than on the former west germany interesting that's a fact what i wouldn't have expected Thank you for sharing. Incidentally, and no one else would know this, but yeah. uh, John Entine, publisher of Genetic Literacy Project, showed us an actual piece of the Berlin Wall that he collected <laughs> when he went over there. <laughs> so he's just got this hunk of concrete sitting on his desk, and it's a it's a really cool piece of history. So um, I don't have anything like that. I just have boring old books. Anyways, <laughs> let's, let's talk about some science. Oh, and I should mention, you can't see our faces because, as you can imagine, the Wi-Fi connection between California and Berlin, a little sketchy. So we're trying to <laughs> trying to keep it uh, under control here just with audio. So you can hear our voices, and we're going to talk about these stories like we always do. So let's jump into these. First up, is lab-grown meat environmentally harmful? Next, California plan chooses politics over science and will dump millions more tons of carbon and threaten food security. And this has to do with pesticide bans, naturally. My home state, always on top of the game. (laughs) And finally, America needs food, so why do presidential debates ignore farming policy? An excellent question we will explore in just a few minutes here. But uh, first up, let's talk about lab-grown meat. We've sort of uh, danced around this issue, Liza, multiple times since you've joined the show, but I, I don't think we've actually really gotten into it in depth. Um, So this story gives us a good opportunity. This is by Jessica Scott Reed writing for Corporate Nights. And she's talking about a study that was conducted by researchers at UC Davis. And the study concluded that cell cultured meat or lab grown meat or alternative protein, whatever you want to call it, meat grown in a bioreactor, essentially, could actually be more burdensome to the environment than the traditional meat meat, you know, meat from farms and meat from animals. And, um, Here's a, here's a couple of numbers. These are pretty striking. So the study states that uh, cell-cultured meat production generates around 25 times the emissions of beef. And beef, according to some, you know, a couple of estimates, is responsible for about 14% of global greenhouse gas emissions. We could nitpick with that number. I'll just leave that for now. No big deal. Um, and the media picked up on this because they love these sort of counterintuitive, ironic, crazy stories. So the San Francisco Chronicle uh, said there's a big environmental downside to lab-grown meat. Uh, uh, Futurism said, new study is extremely embarrassing for lab-grown meat. New scientists uh, also had a similar headline. So everybody was getting in on this. Um, and then there's a, there's a trade group. I think it's called the Good Food Institute, and it's headed by a man named Bruce Friedrich. And he was quick to challenge a study. And one of the problems that he had with it is that um, 
it's based on today's technology and it's based on and Liza maybe you can speak to this but it's it's pharmaceutical grade um lab technology that that they 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 use to estimate these prices for producing lab grown meat and the critics including Mr. Friedrich said well that's not necessary for food production and so the prices in the future um are going to be much lower and so therefore this study doesn't really tell us very much um, and there is, and the article touches on this, there's a sort of tension, there's a sort of, you know, um, mainstream agriculture has its experts and then the lab grown food people have their own experts. And there's this sort of like study war going on with these people fighting back and forth. So maybe that's something we can explore. But what did you take away from this? Yeah, it was, it's really interesting because um, my first personal encounter with lab grown beef was at the Consortium of Universities for Global Health meeting, I want to say maybe in 2018, where um, they were touting the benefits of this in terms of environmental effects, but the cost to produce one pound of lab-grown beef was $18,000. I thought, hmm, that's actually probably not going to work so well <laughs> back then. But I didn't know what kind of um, market uh, potential this was eventually going to have because all of a sudden it kind of exploded out of everywhere and everybody's talking about cell-based meat um, and and and, and uh, growing it in in a lab and how, how how what what a positive impact that was going to have in, on for for animal welfare and and for uh, people having access to high quality protein. Now the problem is that you know, it, well, not only is it expensive and it requires a lot of resources for, you know, just growing it from a single cell. The other problem is that it, how do you how do you ensure that it meets the USDA quality? Um, so if you're growing if you're if you're growing a cow, um, there are rules and regulations for how everything gets processed from that. Well, I guess beef is going to really be more of a sphere, but if, if you're, if you're doing that, there's a, there, there are whole sets of rules and regulations about that, which are not put into practice just yet when it comes to uh, lab grown meat. And if you, the claim that it's not fair to hold it to pharmaceutical standards is kind of interesting because um, if you are taking a pill um, you have to make sure that everything that went into that pill is tested and there's a whole regulatory apparatus around that pill and it's going to be ingested just like the beef is going to be ingested. And so I don't think it's actually unreasonable to make sure that the, um, the quality of the product that you're ingesting is uh, bacteria free, is is uh nutritionally equivalent to the, I mean, they, they hold GMOs to the standard, right? So it, it should be nutritionally equivalent to whatever, however many ounces of beef you're eating and all of that stuff. And so it's a, it's a fascinating argument to listen to um, a bunch of companies who are making this very expensive product um, have claims that, you know, the natural product is in somehow inferior. You know, I was, I'm reading the story and uh, this gentleman, Mr. Friedrich, he made what I thought was a good point initially. He said, 
Um, and here's the quote. He says, the, the, the way that they're doing this study, he says, it's a bit like saying electric vehicles will never catch on because there's no charging infrastructure, uh, which means there will never be any charging infrastructure. There will never be any innovation, which which involved taking exactly how it's done now and making that a billion times larger. And of course, I think the point he's getting at is, well, that's obviously not what has happened with electric cars, right? As as the technology improves, you get more charging stations, you get more efficient batteries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think he's trying to say the same thing is going to happen with this sort of technology. And maybe he's right, but I think there's something amusing here and, and there's a double standard. And this goes on a lot in these kind of food debates. He goes on, I don't know if it's it's him necessarily, but his institute, the Good Food Institute, they criticized the study and they said that we've done a life cycle assessment of of these uh, lab-grown meats. And that's just, that's just a fancy, sexy phrase for um, how much energy uh, does it require to produce one of these things from start to finish, from the time that they start making it or produce growing it, whatever, to the time that you eat it, how much energy does that consume? Correct me mm-hmm. if I'm wrong, Eliza, but I think that's the gist of what a, a life cycle assessment is. Um, yep. So they pointed out, they said, well, we've done our own peer-reviewed studies, and that this the study from UC Davis apparently hasn't been peer-reviewed yet. And they said, well, our life cycle assessment showed that it, the carbon footprint uh, goes down by 92%, land use by 90%, and water use by 66%. Now, I found this amusing because there's, there's um, a well-known fact about LCAs, and that is you can make them say whatever you want, depending on whatever assumptions you start with. And one of the stu- assumptions in here, and this is a quote that they said, this this analysis found that cultivated meat produced at scale using renewable energy. Okay, so that I mean that's a key <laughs> that's a key phrase, and the reason that's important mm-hmm. is because almost nothing today runs on what people think of as renewable energy, namely wind and solar. Um, it, it has to be heavily subsidized. The right the reason that some people can afford to put solar panels on top of their houses is because the rest of us pay taxes that subsidize the cost that's right uh, and it, it's the same thing on um on the supply side right the government invests all lots of governments they invest heavily billions upon billions of dollars in wind and solar and so when you do these kind of economic comparisons they can look competitive with fossil fuels if you if you you know do the do the, the number crunching just right and that's the problem here so at the same time that um you know the good food institute is criticizing uc davis they're making their own assumptions to make their product look better than i think it really does what what do you think about that so i think that um cattle are the ultimate plant-based plant-based protein makers right and that and and they are fueled by solar period right so they 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 take energy that we can't, they, 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 they consume something that we can't consume, can consume grass, which is, which is fed by solar energy, and they convert it into very high quality protein, period, end of report. And the, these, these animals are bred to be ultra efficient at doing that. And they have farmers who are taking care of them prior to becoming products for people to eat and quite a number of other products that are very, very critically important for research that we don't ever talk about. We don't talk about agar plates and gels and, 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 you know, gelatin and, uh, you know, what leather is used for and all of this stuff. There, there are a whole bunch of byproducts um, in, in processing and rendering cattle 
that are used. It's, it's not just it's not just meat and milk, right? Um, so so we've gotten much much more efficient in the 20th and 21st century at at cattle breeding and converting sunlight to energy in grass to energy in cattle to high quality protein. So children can have you know access to a food supply that is that that helps their brains grow and help them grow so um that that's not part of this whole discussion and and farmers are very very cognizant of the health of their animals right so um they don't they don't want to raise cattle that are going to be somehow less productive and if you treat your animals badly they're going to be less productive and that's that's part of the whole discussion that never gets addressed. Um, So uh, long and short is that we've got a much more efficient breeding mechanism and herds and and, um, livestock than we've had in the past and um, I think it's fascinating that 15 companies um, that are investing in um, lab-grown beef are saying that it's it's that that mother the way mother nature works and the way farming works um, is is not as good as what they're doing. Yeah, that is a, an amusing observation. Before we move on, is uh, you know, natural is good until we think natural isn't good. Then natural is not so important. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's, not fascinating. it's just fascinating. Yeah, uh, but do do look into this. Um, Genetic Literacy Project has a, a frequently asked questions article on their website, looking at all of uh, the alternative proteins. Really dives deep into this, so go check that out if you want some background. Very, very helpful, um, well researched, and, and lot, lots of stuff you can learn from that. But uh, let's move on. In the meantime, Liza, let's talk about this article from the Hill. It was authored by uh, Chris Novak, who was with Crop Life, by the way, which is uh, an industry trade group. Just so everyone's clear on that. Uh, Story is called. California's plan to choose politics over science on pesticides will dump millions more tons of carbon and threaten food security. And um, he's talking here about a proposal in my beautiful, lovely home state that is going to uh, allow state regulators to disagree with the EPA's registration label for a pesticide. So the EPA thoroughly reviews pesticides, as we've talked about before, takes more than a decade, costs more than $100 million, probably more. Liza, I'm sure you could speak to that. Um, but after this process is done, the, the the EPA says, okay, you can use this pesticide and these amounts for these specific purposes. These are the rules. It's all on this label. Um, now, what California is trying to do, because how do I put this delicately? My state is run by people who are zealous when it comes to the environment and it comes to food production and they have a deep distrust of markets and companies and industry so on and so forth and so they want to make it so they can restrict the use of pesticides beyond what the epa says so there's a bill in congress i'm not sure how far it's gone but novak talks about it and basically it would just say in so many words the epa's determination on questions of pesticide use is the law. And I think there's a few exceptions, you know, states can restrict certain things depending probably on, you know, um, environmental conditions or something like that. But for the most part, it says that if the EPA says this is okay to use, it can be used anywhere in the United States. And so there's this big fight coming. Um, 
And Novak goes on and he says, you know, if California gets its way, there's a lot of alarming things that are going to happen. And it's not just going to affect farmers, which is bad. You don't want to, you know, hurt their welfare. And it's going to affect uh, pesticide applicators and like agricultural workers that go between states. They're going to have to comply with all kinds of varying regulations. And of course, there's a risk for food security because if the bugs eat the crops before we get to eat them, there's less food for us. It's really complicated math. You know, think through that. It might take you a little bit, but it's a real problem, right? So pesticides, as he says in the article, are a fundamental uh, part of producing food and they can be used safely as we've talked about ad nauseum. Um, so what what do you think here, Liza? This, this is concerning to me. I'm not surprised because I live here and there's all kinds of really silly rules like this, but uh, what do you think? Yeah, I think, I think you know, they, 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 people talk about states' rights and things about being important for states' rights and all of that. And I, I understand the, the, the fundamental nature of a uh, republic, right? But when it comes to uh, general science, right, science is going to be true whether or not different people agree with that science and you have to move forward as a society so you if you have state a a a group of states that decides that they're going to label things differently based on a um one or two studies versus a uniformly accepted um set of protocols and procedures and studies that last for 10, 15, 20 years that are repeated time and time again for very old chemistries, um, you will have certain states that will say, well, we're not going to take this uh, pesticide. um, And if you apply it, we're not going to, we're not going to accept your agriculture. Um, And what that does is it creates kind of a chaotic situation in in agriculture. So if the Midwest isn't allowed to uh, sell its goods to the West Coast because the West Coast has decided that it's going to label things and the Midwest doesn't live up to that label, um, then that really sort of harms trade. Um, And not only harms trade, but it harms undermines the science that is that it regulatory science that that is ensuring food safety we have the most safe food system in the 20th century because of the rules and regulations that go around pesticide applications breeding and all of those kinds of things like that and if 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 states can't agree on that then we then we have a really complicated system where um, you can't do trade between states. If you can't do trade between states, um, you wind up having uh, a major food security issue and expense, um, and at, at taxpayer expense. This is not. This is not. These labels aren't going on necessarily just at you know a company's expense. This is this is uh, taxpayers having to pay higher prices because um, people have different opinions about. Uh, pesticides rather than 
looking at what it takes to get a pesticide on the market. So it's about a quarter of a billion dollars in 10 years of testing. And most of the pesticides on the market have been on the market for market for decades. And we know what human health effects that they have. And we know what animal and environmental health, health effects they have. And, and their, their application is very highly regulated. So the question becomes, um, do you want to have food security or do you, do you want to be have a precautionary principle um, around around labeling? Yeah, the, maybe the silver lining here, and I hope it doesn't get too silver, is that when people's tummies start to rumble, uh, the rules change really quickly, and it doesn't yeah. matter. It doesn't matter yeah. how how many high minded ideals you have, or you know, you're you're. You want to protect the environment. You have, you know, that's like the red barn fallacy we've talked about many times before. That's all going to fade away. Like if you're a politician in California and your voters are hungry and their children are hungry and, you, you know, God, God, God willing, that never happens. Don't get me wrong. But I think this proposal is so right. dumb that it might have a solution built into it. Um, one other thing I want to say before we move on is that this idea of states' rights is really important. But I think in California, I've lived here all my life. The way that politics work here is that you have a handful of really big cities that that are very much on the left side of the political spectrum that basically dictate state policy to everybody else. And it's not necessarily that there are more people. So it's not strictly speaking democracy that's prevailing. The state is gerrymandered like crazy. So there are districts that are cut off and expanded in such a way that that they can send people to the state legislature and, and send people into various, you know, elected positions um, just because the way that they're cut up. And this is not a problem just in California. Nevertheless, mm -hmm. and I would just to give you an example, I worked on a, uh, an assembly campaign, a legislative campaign years ago, and the district that I was working in was divided by a drive of about two hours. So part of the district was in my area and then the rest of it was two hours away. So they had literally split it. I don't know when it happened, but they literally split it into two different places. So they're not connected, which is really strange. And that was done mm -hmm. for, that was done to to cut up votes in in for one reason or another. And so I think it's important for people to understand that. There's there's huge swaths of California that are agricultural uh land. It's just lots of farms. You can drive up and down Interstate 5, which connects California, Oregon, and Washington. And um for most of that drive, at least if you're going um, south to north, like if you're in the Central Valley, it's all agriculture. So I promise you, the people that work down there, the people that live down there, that are connected to food production in any way, they're not for this, right? This is this is um, you know wealthy people that live in high rises in San Francisco, right? This is their doing, and um, yeah. be you know be aware of that, right? So the the states' rights thing is important, and I don't want to minimize that but i don't even think it's the state you know speaking on this issue it's a handful of people that have political power that's exactly right and this kind of ties into the next discussion because the people are not inherently interested in agriculture and so because because they sort of think of it as oh you know these these straw hat you know wheat, wheat stock in the mouth the country bumpkins doing stuff willy-nilly there's a, there's not a general understanding of ag agriculture as there was at the beginning of the 20th century because so many people farmed 
And so, so people don't understand what kind of work is entailed in, in doing that. Um, and the reason why we have the food security that we do is because of the scientific advances that we've made in pesticide production and in plant breeding and in agronomy and a whole variety of different things. But people don't appreciate it because they, the, 2% of our population farms. And California is really a, an, it's an ag super state in spite of all of that, which is remarkable. Um, it's called the salad bowl of the world, right? Or the, the, at least the United States. Um, and, and it couldn't get to the position that it was in without these scientific advances. If you remember, uh, Cesar Chavez uh, conducted a whole human rights campaign around weeding because immigrant workers, migrant workers would be, very physically harmed by using the short-handled hoe, which is this little teeny tiny hoe to do weeding. Um, so, you know, it, it's a, it, it, it actually becomes a human rights issue, not only because of workers' rights, but the people who are going to be most affected by these initial changes in labeling and whatever seems so, you know, high in the sky, are, are the people who can least afford it. It's, that it's people who can't afford to, they, they're in food deserts, they can't afford to be, buy fruits and vegetables, so that they, they don't have access to grocery stores and things like that with that, that there. Um, and so I think that, that that's all kind of wrapped into this issue. Um, and I do believe that uh, a lot of these folks think that they are doing the right thing um, but they're not understanding the ramifications of what they're doing because so few people actually farm anymore. Um, incidentally, John Antine, who I mentioned earlier, publisher of Genetic Literacy Project, he co-authored a book years ago. It's called Let Them Eat Precaution. And it's all about this, this kind of question, right? Is like, like people enact these policies and they say, hey, better safe than sorry. Let's ban this pesticide just in case. And then when the result is not enough food to go around, you can't tell people, well, eat better safe than sorry, right? Feed, feed your child better safe than sorry. It doesn't work that way. You know, so there, there are real consequences. Everyone needs to be aware of those. Um, and that does, as you mentioned, this goes very nicely into our, our final story, which was called um, America Needs Food. Why do presidential debates ignore farming policy? And this was published in the Washington Examiner. This is by Bill Wirtz, who's with the uh, Consumer Choice Center. And he does great work. He, he writes all sorts of excellent editorials that are that very nicely summarize uh, a lot of issues related to pesticide safety and, and genetic engineering and uh, food food security and so forth. So so read read Bill's work. It's, it's generally excellent. But in the story, he talks about um, what Liza just, just alluded to, which is that um, when it comes to presidential politics, what do we talk about, right? We talk about gun control, we talk about abortion, we talk about immigration, and we talk about, you know, how the guy who's running this time is not like all the other guys, and he's going to change it, and blah, 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 and then wash, rinse, repeat. Nothing ever changes. Um, but but I have to admit, there is a certain entertainment value to that, right? And as we talked about with, with RFK Jr. a couple months ago, Politics is very much about entertainment. It's very much about I'm the machismo outsider rebel guy and I'm going to change the world. And so we sort of fall for that ploy every four years or every two years, depending on the election that's in question. And as you said, farming 
to most people, and I frankly don't understand this, it's just not a sexy topic, right? There isn't a clear, as far as most people are concerned, there isn't a clear good guy and a bad guy, and I'm on team good, and we're going to fight team bad, because that's the way most people divide themselves on political issues. It's just, there's team farmer, and they make the food, right? So nobody really thinks of it the way that they do traditional issues. Now, now Wirtz points out that uh, uh, Republicans and farmers tend to coincide, right? Farmers are generally more conservative culturally, and they tend to vote for Republicans. So they kind of get taken for granted there. And then uh, the Democrats, recognizing that relationship, they sort of demonize might be the wrong word, but they sort of downplay the importance of farming. They don't really campaign in farm states um, as much as that, you know, they, they probably should. And so you just get this status quo where nothing changes. I think that's frustrating. And as he goes on to argue, right, everybody eats. So we need to really deal with this. And he gives a couple of, of important points. But but let's talk about that first issue, Liza. It's just people aren't interested in farming. And I don't get that. I mean, I planted a mandarin tree in my backyard a few years ago. It's like, mm-hmm. it's like, a, it's like a foot tall. I put it in the, put it in the ground. You know, the guy at the at the store is like, use this fertilizer, use this, because the bugs will try to eat it at this time of year. And mm-hmm. me, with like no agricultural experience, I mean, I know lots of stuff because I read a lot, but I don't do it. You know, there's no reason for me to do that. But nevertheless, I was able to take this tiny little tree and with the advice of someone who's an expert, it turned into this almost six foot tall tree and it yields all kinds of mandarins every year and they're delicious. And I'm like, that's really cool that that I can do that. You know, someone figured out how all this works and then helped me do it. So wh- why do you think that is? Why are people just not interested? Well, first of all, because they sort of take food security for granted. We are we ha- have never had since the 20th century, up until the 20th century, there was no such thing as this amount of abundance. And this amount of abundance came from very important scientific advances in agriculture. But people take it for granted. They, they sort of think, oh, you know, I just go to the grocery store and get my food, and that's where the food grows. And not, nobody thinks about what it takes. They, they aren't involved in the labor that it takes to grow productive crops. And so um, they romanticize um, the notion that subsistence farming is the more moral and appropriate way to do things without having to do it themselves and understand that that's a state of existence that's very, very difficult for actually the majority of people in developing countries. Um, So if you think about the fact that in 1900, we lived to the ripe old age of 45 and 45% of the population farmed. And by 2000, 2% of the population farmed and, uh, you know, we were pushing 80. So most people aren't personally invested in what it takes to feed themselves and their families. And, And there's nothing wrong with that state of affairs as long as people understand that, there are really important advances um, to make that happen. And those are actually interesting. But people, it, people don't perceive agriculture in the same way. The reason why you and I can be sitting here, you know, thousands of miles away having this conversation, um, the, the reason why I was able to go to medical school and become a doctor is because somebody fed me. Um, it, 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 I didn't have to spend all of my time and energy um, working on a little plot of land, trying to feed myself and my children. Um, and so, uh, and, and that's just, that's an amazing 
amazing accomplishment. Um, because once again, we have 10,000 years of experience with organic agriculture and nothing's wrong with it, but it doesn't reliably feed people um, in 50 years of food security in the West. And so we've lost sight as a population of the importance of agriculture. And because it doesn't, we, we don't perceive it to like affect our everyday lives. We think we can tweak it without understanding it. Um, and that that's the, uh, yeah, it, it, it's, it, but I, I think it was, might've been Richard Nixon in the seventies who made food security a really important, he would, I, I think this might be correct, double check me, but he made food security a priority and was very involved with subsidizing agriculture. And so people talk about, oh, you know, the farm bill and how we need to reform the farm bill because it spends so much uh, extra energy on, on, on subsidizing farmers when really 80% of the farm bill goes to SNAP, which is the uh, program that does school lunches for inner city children. So um, the farm bill always gets maligned, but people don't understand that it's actually subsidizing kids at school. Um, so yeah, it, there, there, there are lots of nuances in this. Um, it, and I just wish I could figure out a way for people to pay more attention because that's, it's such a critical issue. And as we uh, mentioned a few minutes ago, it doesn't take much to upset this balance, you know, like where I'm sitting right now, there's food on every corner and within five mm -hmm. minutes, within five minutes of me, there's safe, abundant food for a price that most people can afford. My, uh, for example, my wife is pregnant again. And so she's got all these weird cravings. So I went to the grocery store the other night and I bought her top ramen. This is like, mm -hmm. just, you know what I mean? And I, I mm -hmm. don't know, I don't know how much it costs to produce it, but I can go to the grocery store and buy like 10, 10 packages at a dollar a piece. Right. <laughs> you know? So you like, you can come, you can subsist on top ramen. Not that you should, don't get me wrong, <laughs> but you could, <laughs> you know, with, with 30 bucks, I mean, you could eat that stuff for probably a couple of weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. so, so there's food everywhere. But if you think about something like Ukraine, you know, like the fighting in Ukraine seriously, um, put a kink in, in food production in that part of the world, right? Because Russia stopped exporting the fertilizers that it produces. And it's, I think it's the top or one or the top two. Yep. It's a major yep. fertilizer exporter. Um, Ukraine produces a ton of the wheat and ton of the grain that everybody uses. Yep. You know, so in, in order to make up for this, other countries had to start producing more and they couldn't keep up with it. So there were shortages. So there were food price increases. There were actual food shortages in a lot of poor countries. A lot of people went hungry, which really sucks, obviously. Um, and we didn't feel too many effects. I think there were a few instances where people were snapping pictures of empty store shelves and right for a little bit of time, um, you know, people said, oh, wow, there's no bread in my grocery store. And then it was refilled, right? Because yep. the, the supply chain adjusted and we figured it out. But that won't always be the case. You know, all it would take is some sort of a major conflict or a major natural disaster. And if you're not focusing on producing enough food, things go badly very quickly. Well, yeah, or even just misguided science, right? So Trofim Lysenko was billed as the deadliest science of the scientist of the 20th century. He was Stalin's minister of agriculture. He did not believe in genetics. And he wound up fabricating research that 
he said that, that he could breed certain crops in cold uh, environments that actually didn't produce anything. But that, that the truth in Trofimosenko's mind and, and it's the Soviet Union's mind didn't particularly matter. And his policies led to a huge famine in the 30s where millions and millions of people died. Um, and then they were adopted by Mao in the 50s for the Great Leap Forward and 50 million people died. Um, and so people don't understand how fundamental agriculture is the foundation of civilization. I mean, if you think about it, that's where civilization came from, because 10,000 years ago in the Mesopotamian River Valley, when uh, some guy or gal came up with the idea that if you plant some wheat, um, you can actually make it. This is fertile land and we can make it grow and we can stop our hunting and gathering environment or civil or, or lifestyle. And that spawned the great civilizations um, Babylon, you know, Ur, you know, just great civilizations in the, Egypt, in 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 the Middle East, because people could people could thrive, um, and we've learned over millennia how to breed plants to to make them more, more and more and more productive. And once we learned about genetics, we were able to do this in overdrive. And um, the fact that Lysenkoism is starting to rear its head again because people distrust science so much um, really puts the poor people first on the tip of the pointy spear um, at the highest risk because they, they have as they don't have anywhere near as much wiggle room as you know the academics who are having these discussions um, so uh, I think Lysenkoism is is reviving itself and it's very unfortunate. It's a very good point. I, I want to say it's been a while since I've read about this, but I think he tried to apply Marxist philosophy to agriculture. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and the, the details are are fascinating. We'll get into that another time. But, you know, when you get goofy people in charge, bad stuff, <laughs> bad stuff goes wrong. So I think we need to, one thing as we wrap up here is to say we need to think more holistically because a lot of the issues that we have a real firm position on have um externalities that we don't think about you know so like on foreign policy maybe we encourage certain wars to take place that uh you know they look good on paper and you can say it's for democracy and i'm not going to say which one you guys can guess i don't really care <laughs> um for example we may engage in a conflict or encourage other countries to engage in conflict and the fallout can be severe and we may not realize that you know so we may not like with with Ukraine, for example, like, wow, food's more expensive or gasoline's more expensive or or whatever. Right. So, I mean, all of these issues are interconnected. And if we don't think about that, we end up with really bad policies in place. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if, all you have to do is look to Sri Lanka for what mm -hmm. bad agricultural policy leads to. Like, you know, your your nation can be stable. Um, but you make some bad policy in that department or bad policy in the energy department, and you really have a big, huge problem on your hands. Unfortunately true. Okay. Well, I hope uh, hope people take away from this and go uh, write their congressman or whatever. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then get involved. I know that sounds silly, but it does work. Right? And it maybe, totally does. Yes, it does. Yeah. Maybe you as an in an individual camp, but uh, you can get involved with groups that have more influence and make be the change you want to see in the world or whatever that stupid phrase is okay 
We're done for the week. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us. We'll be back next week for 236. In the meantime, follow us on social media at Dr. Liza Dunn, MD, at Cam J. English, at Genetic Literacy, and uh, check out geneticliteracy.org for their website. There's so much cool stuff on there. I've learned a lot. I used to work there, conflict of interest stated. There you go. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Have a great week, everybody. Have a great week. <laughs>